Good morning again. I'm glad you all are here. Hope you're having a good week and ready to get into what we're going to begin tackling this morning. Um, so back in 2020, uh, we began this series. Uh, it's an ongoing series called Tell Me the Story of Jesus. And uh, we broke back in November of last year uh, with Thanksgiving and Christmas, and then we did our Invest series. But this morning, we're going to be picking this series back up again. And, and here's one of the goals of this series is to take the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and to piece them together as chronologically as we possibly can for the point of understanding Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and the impact that is to have on our life, and just to get this incredible picture that all four Gospels bring us to. So when we stopped and took a little break from it, we just finished chapter 5 in the Gospel of Matthew. And so this morning we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 6, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be in looking in verses 1 through 4 this morning. Um, if you do not have a, a Bible with you, um, it'll be behind me. Um, I would like to say this because I had this conversation last week. If you have a Bible, bring a Bible. <laughs> um, we are so blessed to be able to have the Word of God and be able to read it and have the physical copy of it in our hands. I know a lot of you do it through mediums like a tablet or a phone, but um, to read along with it, um, just because not only you hear it, but you're reading your mind and you're doing multiple things that your, your body does in order to allow the Word of God just to soak into you. But if you forgot today, that's fine. We're people of grace, right? <laughs> um, but I just want to challenge you all to start bringing your Bibles, have a physical copy of it in hand, again, whatever medium you have. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. Oh, and if you don't have a Bible, let me know. Find me, and we'll make sure you did a Bible before you leave this morning, okay? Um, but we'll be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And the word of the Lord says, <clears throat> Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 3, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we come before you, we thank you for this incredible gift you've given us in salvation and forgiveness and uh, knowing that we belong to you and nothing can separate us from you. Father, we thank you that you've given us the victory, you have conquered death for us. Uh, and we thank you for just revealing that to many of us here this morning. But Lord, I pray in this time that your spirit begins working on the hearts of the individuals who may be here who do not know you as their Lord and Savior. I, I thank you that they're here. But Lord... We know your will is that everyone would, would be saved. And so I pray that through this message or through your spirit just speaking to their heart in the only way your spirit can, that they would come to that understanding and today would be the day of their salvation. As we open up your word, Father, we pray that your spirit would guide and lead us, that it would be your word speaking to our hearts, that you would be transforming us more into your likeness, Father, that you alone would be glorified. So, um, Lord, don't let me get in your way. I thank you for allowing me to be an instrument of righteousness in this moment and to be able to shepherd your people. But, Father, we want your will to be done and your kingdom to come in each and every life here this morning. We pray you forgive us where we have failed you. If we uh, have been somewhere else while we're supposed to be worshiping you mentally, 
Father, forgive us, for you are worthy of our attention. You are worthy of our praise and our glory. And we ask that in this time as we open your word that we continue to worship you in spirit and truth through your word. I thank you for what's going to happen here this morning. We submit to your will. And we praise all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> so Matthew chapter 5, what we were looking at several months back, in Matthew chapter 5, just a reminder, Jesus has just given an accurate explanation and interpretation of the law. And now as he comes into chapter 6 here, his focus has now changed to three spiritual disciplines which have been highly valued within the Jewish people. And we have to keep in mind his audience right now is a Jewish audience. Before we can jump into these three spiritual disciplines of giving to the needy, of praying, of fasting, Jesus has to deal with the inaccurate examples now that the Jewish people have seen. So as in chapter 5, that inaccurate interpretation of the law, now Jesus is going to deal with inaccurate examples of these spiritual disciplines which are meant to draw us deeper into the presence of God and to worship Him. Now these aren't the only three spiritual disciplines the Jewish people have, so Jesus isn't being exhaustive in this moment, but they were the most prominent. They were the most prominent requirements for personal piety or religious reverence within the Jew Jewish system. So Jesus dealt with inaccuracy of the law. Now he's going to deal with inaccuracy observance of religion. Verse 1, we need to spend some time with this morning because it's attached to the other three that he's going to deal with. Verse 1 is giving us this word of beware. And it's attached to verse 2 in giving to the needy. It's also attached to verses 5 through 8 in prayer. It's attached to verse 16 when it comes to fasting. So here in verse 1, what Jesus is doing, he's saying, look, don't do this. And then he gives an example of giving to the needy of how the people have seen what Jesus says don't do. He does the same thing for the Lord's Prayer. Verse 1 says, don't do this. And then verse 5 through 8 of the Lord's, of the, speaking of the prayer, this is how you've seen it done. And don't do that. Again, verse 1, don't do this. And you connect it to verse 16 of fasting saying, this is how you've seen fasting done, but don't do that. Verse 1 begins with the word beware. Now, when we come across this word in Scripture and Jesus is saying it or God is saying it to his people in the Old Testament, it is a word in which we should stop and pay very close attention to what is about to follow. For example, if we were out traveling and we asked someone for directions, even if they were a stranger and they told us how to get to a certain place and, and told us, but do not go to this area and do not go down that road, we would take that to heart. They have given us to beware. Now, here's Jesus who loves us more deeply than we can ever fathom, and he's saying, beware. The word beware can be interpreted as be careful, take care, take heed, be on your guard, be concerned about this, pay very close attention. In other words, Jesus is telling us to stop here for a second and get ready for what he is about to teach and what he is about to say and to pay very close attention to the instructions he is about to give us. Now what's interesting about this statement here in verse 1 is previously in chapter 5 and verse 20, Jesus has told this audience in, in this section of Matthew, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Yet here in chapter 6 and verse 1, he's telling us to watch out. Beware of doing your righteousness 
in front of other people. And so if our righteousness is supposed to exceed the religious leaders, yet at the same time we're supposed to be careful in how we do our righteousness, I think if we were in this audience, we would be at a crossroads at this moment. Okay, what exactly am I supposed to be doing? How does this look in my life? How are people supposed to see this? Are they supposed to see this? One thing Jesus is not saying in this statement in verse 1 is that our righteousness should not be visible. What he is saying here is that we need to be mindful of who we are doing our righteous deeds for. So the statement of verse 1 brings us to a question. What are our intentions? What do we want to see happen? What is the motive behind what we do? Now, with Matthew 5, 20, our righteousness can only see the righteousness of the religious leaders if we are found in Christ. His righteousness was a perfect righteousness. But in Romans 6, we are told that we are to present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and in members to God as instruments for righteousness. So obviously, righteous deeds are going to become visible. But we have to ask our question, what are our intentions, what are our motives behind why we do what we do? So here's some questions. Why do we go to church? Why do we sing songs praising our God? Why do we tithe? Why do we read our Bible? Why do we go to Bible study? What is the point of what we are doing? Are we here for God? Are you here for another individual? Are we singing songs to God because we believe He is worthy of our worship? Or do we sing songs because we don't want to be the only person here who's not singing? And maybe some of us just move our lips. Are we tithing because we trust God and we understand that all things come from God and belong to God? Or are we tithing because we're worried that someone might notice we're not tithing? Do we come to church and we come to Bible study to draw close to God, or do we come for some other reason? Is it just something that we're doing on a Sunday or on a Wednesday night? It's just that time of the week. What are our intentions in being here? What are your intentions in doing the things that draw deeper into relationships with God and with Jesus? And so though Jesus deals with three spiritual disciplines of righteous deeds, here in chapter 6, verse 1 is a time for us to stop and pause. What are our motives? What are our intentions? Who are we wanting to see what we are doing? That word seen in verse 6 can be read as to be noticed, to attract attention, to be admired. We may want to be noticed and attract attention in other areas of our life, like at work or in sports or at school or other activities you may be involved in. But when it comes to righteous acts, when it comes to righteous deeds, the goal isn't to draw attention to ourselves, but rather to draw attention to God. And therefore, it is God who receives the glory. The righteous deeds we do are to magnify the Father and to expand the kingdom. That's why we are to do what we do. It magnifies the Father and expands the kingdom. And from verse 1, Jesus turns his attention to giving to the needy in verse 2. It's also be known as almsgiving in the Jewish world. And so as audience, and we can understand what not to do, Jesus brings up the regular occurrence most likely done by the religious leaders. Now giving to the needy, giving to the poor, something that God instructs us as his people in the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
when the Apostle Paul finally made it to Jerusalem and he met with the apostles to tell them the message he had been preaching to the Gentiles and to share with them how the Gentiles have now been coming to the faith. They've been accepting the gospel. The apostles approved Paul's message and they gave him this warning reminder, remember the poor. What happened in Jesus' day, when it came to giving to the needy or taking care of the poor, it came this ridiculous theology and ridiculous religious tradition. In the time of the second temple, which is where we are here in Matthew 6, when you gave to the poor, it was a means to atone for your sin. Douglas O'Donnell writes, in their minds, and that's the minds of the Jewish people, it was easier for a rich man to enter the kingdom because such a man could essentially buy his way in simply by giving to the poor. Obviously, Jesus is going to deal with that mentality later on in his ministry. And we might be here this morning like, that's, that's crazy. Why would people think that's something you could do? But it's not so far-fetched. Up until the Reformation led by Martin Luther, that's exactly what the Roman Catholic Church called for people to do. They called them to give indulgences, to buy indulgences. You could pay to remove your sin. You could actually pay to remove a family member's sin who wasn't with you. You could pay money to the church in order to bring somebody out of hell who may have died in their sin. And so people would do this out of fear. And we may not go that far, but sometimes we don't give today out of a cheerful heart. Sometimes we may not give out of a grateful heart. Sometimes we may just give out of guilt. And there are some people who still believe that if I don't give, if I don't tithe, I may not make it into heaven But then we have to understand it's by nothing we do. It's only by Jesus Christ. What we just sang about is by his blood and his sacrifice that we are saved and forgiven and promised eternal life. There's nothing righteous that we could possibly bring to the table. The phrase when you give to the needy in verse 2 and 3 is a phrase to mean giving to the needy and aiding the poor isn't something as God's people we are to do on occasion, but rather this is to be a regular practice of God's people. We read in Scripture that taking care of the poor is something at the the heart of God. In the book of Leviticus, he commanded those people who were farmers and had fields that they could only farm up into the edges, but not to go to the edges. They were to leave the borders of their land unharvested so that the people who were poor could come by and be taken care of. In the book of Deuteronomy, He reminds his people, there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand, your brother, and to the needy and to the poor in your land. And Jesus says something similar in Matthew chapter 14. Remind us that we always will have poor with you. But the warning here in verse 2 is what not to do. Jesus says, when we do give to the needy, and it's kind of this belief that we're going to be giving to the needy. It's going to be a regular occurrence of our life by whatever means that is, whether that's money or material. When we do it, we aren't to announce it. This is what the sounding of the trumpet is all about. He says, you're not to advertise what you are doing so that others can see. And if you do that, then Jesus says you're a hypocrite. The word hypocrite means an actor in the Greek. It's to speak of someone who appears to be something, but they are not. And to make sure there's no confusion in who Jesus is talking about, he brings his audience to where they would have seen this action taking place in the synagogues and in the streets. The synagogues were the center of the Jewish life. It was the public 
system where they would go and gather. It was a place of worship. At times, you could prepare to our community centers today. It was a place where justice was laid down and carried out. It was a public place where you would enter in, just like we've entered into church. And as we've entered in and when we leave, we have baskets back there. But at synagogues, they would have these metal containers. And so when you would come in or you leave, you would drop your offering that would go to the synagogue and to the poor. And if you dropped a lot, people heard it. And they would look. And Jesus says, don't do that. You're not here to be noticed. In the streets, you're not here to be noticed by your giving. The streets, he speaks of there in verse 2, would be another public area. But here's the difference between the synagogues and the streets. The synagogues is only where the Jewish people could go or those who have converted to Judaism. The streets are where all people could gather. So we have one place where the religious people would gather. We have another where anyone's included, including the non-religious. And it was not uncommon in this day for the poor just to sit along the streets, and they would ask for alms. They would ask for money. They would ask for a handout. And so when someone would give out there in public, it obviously would be visible. Much like when we drive through Springfield and you see people handing things outside their car to people on the corner, it's visible. And so sometimes things are going to be visible and we can't control that. But when we give to the needy, when we give to people, we, we give in a certain way that Jesus is teaching us. He says here, though, that if, if someone were to find out that you gave to the needy, and someone even were to find out, how much you gave to a certain issue. That's not our fault. See, people shouldn't know how much we're giving, but sometimes people are going to find out. But people should know whether you're a big giver, a no giver, a little giver, or a somewhat giver. The matter of giving is between us and God. And so Jesus is saying, if we are doing a righteous deed, like giving to the needy or helping someone out who's going through a tough time, there may be times where others see it, but we are not wanting them to notice it, to praise us or to honor us or to applaud us. Because if that's all we want, it's for others to see what we're doing, Jesus says you've got your reward. It will be a worldly one. It will not be an eternal one. And notice also what Jesus does not do when he speaks about giving. Jesus never specifies amount, an amount. Last week when we were talking about taking up the offering. See, God isn't worried about the amount as much as he is about the heart of the giver. And any amount from the right heart and intention is what gives God glory and what God rewards. Heard a story of a college girl who was back home on break. And she attended a very small country church, and some of us may have been in those small country churches before. It's a church made up of family members, retirees, farmers. There were a few young families, but not very many. Just a small church. And as she was back from break, she shared about how God had led her to go on a mission trip. And she had been raising funds to go on this mission trip, but she was still short, and she had to turn in the money when she got back to school the next week. As the pastor brought her forward, and let the congregation know that this girl needed $700 so she'd go on this mission trip. And if she didn't have the funds, she would not be able to go. He asked the congregation to join him in prayer over her, and they were going to take up a love offering. Well, as the pastor was talking about this love offering, there was a little boy in attendance that day. And the little boy knew the girl because when she was in high school, she would sometimes be in the nursery and she would play with him. 
Well, this little boy just had a birthday, and his grandparents gave him $5. And he had it sitting right there in his pocket. And as he heard this need, he felt that he wanted to give $5 to this girl's mission endeavor. So he told his parents, and his parents said, if that's what you feel led to do, if that's what you do, that's fine. So as the plate came around, he dropped the $5 in, and they took up the offering, they prayed, and then they sang a song as they went back to count the love offering that was, that was going to be obtained. And as they finished their song, and they came back, and they announced to the church they had raised $700 exactly, every penny that she needed. Now, if that boy hadn't given $5, Sure, someone probably could have made the difference. But if he hadn't given that $5, it would have been $5 short. The point is this. It's not the amount. The point is the heart of the giver. How much awe and wonder do you think fell upon that church when the pastor announced she had the exact amount that she needed to go? How much awe and wonder do you think that college girl had when she found out that God provided her the exact penny that she needed to go on this mission trip. See, it's not the amount. $5 wasn't huge by any means, but it brought praise into the heart of that church that day because everyone became a giver to a need. It's because when we give to the needy, whether it's going to be money or materials, it is never about the amount, it's the heart. And the Bible teaches us when we give to those in need, we honor God. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever presses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. The word generous there in the Hebrew from Proverbs 31 means to show favor. So what God tells us about taking care of the poor, he says we, when we show favor to the poor, that's how we honor, which means how we glorify God. So when we bring God the attention to God and bring honor to God. This is what Jesus is driving to in verses 3 and 4. Look there if you would. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that you, your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will re- reward you. Our giving is to be in complete secrecy. It's not to be a billboard. It's not to be blown as a trumpet. It's not for our, to attract attention to ourselves. Um, several years ago, when Ethan was just a little, little guy, we were at a church, and uh, the uh, financial treasurer of that church, the one who counted and took care of the books for the church, um, loved to go up to people on a Sunday morning and remind them that they had not been tithing or giving for several months. And I overheard this conversation, and it kind of made me spiritually sick inside. Um, but then God kind of rebuked me in that moment because we just finished taxes, and don't we love tax season? And I was so excited when I put in our tithing and giving to the church, and the tax deduction came back on our taxes and the amount we owed that I was like, wow, we should, we should keep tithing. And God convicted me on that. So even though I was spiritually sick with this treasurer did, Jamie and I talked and said, I don't, I don't feel we should write a check anymore to the church. I think we just, we're going to give cash. We'll put it in an envelope. We won't put any name on it. Actually, at that church, they had a number system with their envelopes where they could trace who gave what. And so we just stopped giving. We grabbed the visitor envelopes to do it um, so they couldn't track it. 
And we, we've done that. We did that for the longest time until we prayed through it and we worked through it, and then God revealed it was okay to start giving a different way. But I'm not going to lie. <clears throat> I overheard this woman say to the pastor, you know, we have someone on staff who doesn't tithe anymore. And that's a problem. It's a problem when we're doing checks and balances on other people. It's a problem when we give to certain need and a certain mission or a certain ministry, and we wonder why so-and-so isn't. We're actually wanting attention to be drawn to ourselves, and we really need to check our heart. Are we giving for the right reasons and from the right hearts? And when we give, are we doing it in secrecy so much that we don't know if anyone else is giving or what they're giving or when they're giving? So we had to make sure our heart was in the right place when it came to giving and tithing. And this is what the strange comment is that Jesus makes concerning the left and right hand, not knowing what each is doing. It is to tell us we can't fall into the temptation of wanting another's praise when no one knows and when we personally don't keep track of it. As God's people, we're givers. That's just who we are. We're a giving people. The phrase may be in secret in verse 4 literally means this, that it may be from the heart. See, giving is never meant to come from guilt. Our giving should come from the outflow of our heart. It should come from a place where we love God and we love people. And so when we give, it's for God and no one else. And we're commanded to give as a response to all that God has given us. And Jesus keeps talking about some sort of reward here. He does it in verse 1. He says there's going to be no reward for impure righteous deeds. Then in verse 2, he says, you will receive a reward for your righteous deeds when you do them unrighteously, and that reward will be the applause of men. Then in verse 4, he says, what is given in secret, since God knows all things, even things in secret, God will reward you. I think Jesus puts that reward here at the very end of verse 4, because the reward is not to be the motivation on why we give to certain things. But there is reward. That doesn't mean it's going to be physical. That doesn't mean it's going to be on this earth. That doesn't mean it's going to be money. But I can think of at least four rewards that God has given me, and I believe you all can relate, and it's not exhaustive, that we get when we, we give. The first reward is the innate satisfaction of doing what is right before God. When we give to the needy, it's because God has revealed to us a need, and he's planted a burden on our heart to somehow help fulfill that need. And so, therefore, our giving is an act of obedience to God. Second reward is knowing that God has invited us to be a part of something greater than ourselves. When we give to the needy or we give to someone in need or a family in need, it is allowing us not to exalt ourselves or even think of ourselves greater than another, but to allow our heart to outflow to someone else. Thirdly, the reward is knowing God has invited us to join in on his mission and taking care of those who are suffering just as we once were suffering. Our initial suffering was because of our sin, and God gave, and he got us out of that suffering, out of that sin. But how many of us in our lifetime have gone for, through a very difficult patch of life? Car breaks down, we don't have the money to fix it. Something breaks down at the house, we don't have the money to take care of it. When Jamie and I were first married, I was the only one that was fully employed. She was still at school. We had one really good vehicle, <laughs> and it broke down. 
And when they told us how much it was going to cost to fix it, we were, I was fresh out of college. She was still in college. We are like, uh. And she had to drive about an hour every time to get to work. There was someone in that church that we were at where I was ministering at the time who heard of our need, came alongside of us, and paid for it. Didn't want the attention at the church. Didn't let anybody else know. And they paid for it. They helped us get out of it. And we ended up paying them back. But the point is we weren't drawing attention to ourselves we were, someone else stepped in, someone else saw our suffering, and they joined in the mission of God to take care of the suffering. Jesus is going to teach later in chapter 7, Whoever, whatever you wish others to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Final reward is the eternal reward. Later in chapter 6, Jesus is going to tell us to lay up our treasures in heaven. And this is what we do when we give to the needy. And here's the pushback I think some of us have when it comes to giving to the needy. We might get taken advantage of. We might give, and someone doesn't actually have a need, but they're being a hypocrite. They're pretending. I've had that happen numerous times at a gas pump, where someone asks for me to pay for some gas or buy them something from inside to eat. One particular time I remember I, I said, okay, let me go in. And uh, uh, let me give you some money, and you can go in and tell them to put money in your tank. And so as I gave them the money and I walked back to my car, I saw them pull out and drive over across the street to another gas station do the exact same thing. And I was like, oh, man. I wanted to call down fire and brimstone in that moment. But then, again, God convicted me. I said, well, why did you give? Were you giving for the applause, or were you giving because... Your heart was moved in that way. And so when we give, our heart may, or we may be taken advantage of, but we have to give from the right motive, and that motive is to magnify and glorify the Father. And so we can't control what other people do with our generosity. But that can't stop us from being givers, because God expects it of us. So there's three overall lessons we can take from these four verses. First overall lesson is, as God's people, we're to be giving people. There's the warning lesson. When we give, make sure we're giving from the right heart and with the right intentions. And finally, there's the application lesson. All of our giving is to be done for God and not for others. We give to reflect the heart of the Father and perhaps you're here this morning, and you need to know, how is God a giver? Why do we call God a big giver? I want to read a passage of Scripture for you, a couple of them, actually. The Bible says, God says, For God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, why would God have to give his only son? Well, God tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We fall short of his perfection, all of us. And he tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages or the cost of that sin is death, which means eternal separation from a God who loves you. But here's the good news. The gift of God, the giving of his son, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And so you may be here today, and the giving you need to respond to is the gift of God that he lays before you. And this is how God says we are to respond. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be given eternal life. So if you're here this morning, and that's some decision, that's a decision you need to make. What we do is we sing a song, and I'm going to stand right here, and what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to leave the place where you are and to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to accept God's gift. I want to accept salvation. I want to accept forgiveness from God through Jesus Christ. And I believe Jesus died for my sins, rose again, that I could have that gift. And I'm going to ask you to come down and just let that be known. We're going to come this time of invitation. Nick and Bridget are going to lead us in a song. And as they make their way up, let's pray together. But if you need to come down and accept God's gift, I'm going to ask you to come down during this song. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us an incredible gift. And Lord, thank you for giving us an incredible challenge to be givers. Lord, forgive us those times that you've given us the opportunity and we've looked the other way or we've even questioned the need. But Lord, I do thank you for those times in this church where I've seen your people, my brothers and sisters in Christ, rise up and give generously and abundantly. Thank you that that heart is here. But Lord, let us continue to be that type of church where we are giving, giving of ourselves away, not being attached to things of this world, but attached to you. Forgive us if we failed you in any way. And Lord, as we come this time of invitation, it's a time for us not just to be hearers of your word, but doers and responders. We pray so in the name of Jesus.